to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullick. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fullick. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to business continuity, emergency response, resiliency, and anything that's relatable to those topics. Speaking of topics, if there is something you want us to talk about on the show, please feel free, send me an email. There is a uh, button underneath the graphic on the Voice America webpage uh, says host says something to the effect of send host an email. I do get all emails and I do respond to everything. Uh, so if uh, you want to be on the show, please let me know. We also have some adverts and sponsorship uh, positions available, so please let me know that too. Uh, long-time listeners, you'll know that I've been mentioning that I would be attending the Continuity and Resilience Today conference here in Toronto, CRT, and that's where I am today. And uh, just as we did last year, we have been interviewing some of the speakers, and this session is no different. And I'd like to introduce to the, sh- the show uh, Caroline Sapriel. Am I saying the name right? Correct. Caroline Sapriel, who had a session here today, and her topic was Thinking Beyond Business Continuity, Crisis Leadership Strategies. Caroline, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, Pleasure to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and uh, what you do, and how you got into this industry? Of course. So I'm originally French, and actually I have a French passport, um, but I'm bilingual because my stepfather was from Toronto, Canada. I was raised mostly in France, but we spoke English and French at home. Um, So I pretty much um, went to high school in France, and then after that I left and studied in Israel, uh, where I studied Chinese studies and international relations. Having studied Chinese, I decided to leave for Asia, and I lived eight years in Taiwan, which is where I had my first crisis experience. At the time, I was in communications, working for a large consultancy, and uh, we started working with an airline called South African Airways. And in 87, three weeks after starting for a work for this client, um, they had a plane crash, the first ever and the only ever in their uh, history. Um, and so I was young, I was uh, not that experienced in comms, used a lot of my common sense, but I dealt with all of it. Uh, I uh, took 11 journalists to Mauritius, the plane had a stopover in Mauritius and it crashed before landing in the Indian Ocean and took all the next of kin. Um, the majority of the passengers were Taiwanese and that was really, a, so to speak, a baptism of fire for me because there was very little experience on the ground uh, and we really uh, were there to support and do whatever we could for all the families because uh, 259 people died. And so um, that was, I stayed there for a week um, and we did rebuilding plans after that for them. And, um, and then I subsequently was involved with one of my clients in the tobacco industry in another crisis. And then yet the third one, which was uh, pharmaceutical. And so um, I, I continued in comms for a while, but I was really interested in, cri- in the crisis side of it because I felt it was more meaningful than just doing plain PR, which is what it was called at the time. Mm-hmm. I felt yeah. it had a, 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 yeah, a greater contribution. Um, and so I, I um, kind of became a little bit specialist in that, in the comms environment, but I always felt that the comms approach to crisis management, crisis resilience, was a narrow piece. Um, it was often, oh, we have a crisis, here is the hot potato, pass it on to comms. Um, but in fact, comms some, almost never started the crisis. It started mm-hmm. somewhere else in the organization or outside. And so in 90, um, 1990, I moved to Hong Kong, and in 91, uh, I started my own firm, CSNA International, with the ambition to actually create or offer a more comprehensive service 
to help clients be better prepared, and that includes risk, crisis management, and business continuity, which at the time was in very early stages. Yeah, yeah I remember that. And so, and offer a, a, a broader piece looking at you know, HR, HSC, security, all the different aspects of the organization where things could go wrong or vulnerabilities could be detected and how they could be better prepared. My first client was a major airline who had an accident and emergency manual but didn't have a crisis plan. And they asked me to write it. So that was the first project that we handled. And then it took on from there. We started working a lot with oil and gas and different kinds of companies. And the focus was always helping clients build resilience or build preparedness up front or after a crisis. We didn't want to compete, nor did we position ourselves with a lot of the communications and PR firms that were out there that were typically there to hold the fort when the client had a problem. We weren't structured that way, we weren't resourced that way. Um, however, we could provide strategic communications advice to crisis teams at you know, the crux of it. And that's how it developed. And so initially, and the company is still headquartered in Hong Kong. Initially, um, we were mostly Asia Pacific out of Hong Kong. And in the mid 90s, started doing some work in Europe. And so in 98, my partner um, uh, and I decided, he was Belgian, decided that we should set up something in Europe. Belgium being a good place geographically, it's very easy to get to everywhere. Um, we also added a colleague in Hong Kong who can continue, could continue the activities, obviously we went back and forth. And so from Belgium, we then decided to grow um, from there. Uh, we added a colleague in the UK, one in Amsterdam, then we had somebody in Singapore, one in Bangkok, United States, we have LA and, and, um, and DC. And um, the idea was that we would only add senior professionals so that we could provide high-level advice to clients. We were not structured like in agencies with account executives and account directors. It was really high-level counsel um, and with different expertise, anything from government relations to scenario planning to oil and gas to, and that's how it grew. And so the team is not big, but it's high-level and it's geographically well-positioned to serve as clients who are multinationals working everywhere. Well, welcome to Toronto and welcome to the CRT conference. Thank you very much. And uh, nothing quite like uh, learning your uh, role through uh, being thrown into the fire, so Absolutely. to Absolutely, yes. Well, my first question to you then is, because I've heard a couple of different um, definitions lately, how do you define a crisis? Mm, I mean, I'm, it's a great first question, actually, because there's an incredible amount of discrepancy around this. Business continuity professionals describe it in a certain way, comms people describe it in a different mm -hmm. way. Um, and I've uh, looked back at academia for this way, way back when I first started working in it. And crises at an international level are defined by three components, surprise, short time, and threat. And we developed a definition around that. Um, which meant that even if the problem has been around for a while and is slowly smoldering, it requires a, tr a trigger to be exposed and creates that surprise element. It always has a short time component because you need to react now. You can't say, I'm going to deal with it next week. And of course, the threat could be anything to people's lives, um, to your stock price, to reputation, mm -hmm. your assets, the environment, whatever. And uh, sometimes the worst ones threaten a combination of all those aspects. And so uh, it's interesting that I've always used the same definition from 30 years ago, and it could not be more appropriate today because a lot of the crises today are actually not operational. A lot of them have to do with allegations, revelations, improper behavior, mm -hmm. a lot yeah. of things that are actually not operational. Yeah, it, we have used to, to do to more ethics. We used to hear nothing about, you know, uh, always about, you know, there's a flood, there's a fire. Yes. You know, we used to hear about those, but it is different now. Yes, and in fact, uh, research shows that in the, de in the developed world, the majority of crises are smoldering. They start with a small problem somewhere that is not dealt with, badly addressed, or there's a complacent attitude. Uh, it's not the sudden crisis, it's not the plane crashes, it's not the explosions, it's not the fires, it's not the earthquakes. Those are, those are there, but because safety standards are much more solid um, and the envir environments are more regulated, they're actually, um, there are less crises like that compared to the others that seem to f 
stay below the radar until something happens and they get known. Well, it's interesting you use the phrase trigger because it reminds me of uh, program or project management and risk management where you manage your risks, but you identify the trigger which will turn that risk into an actual issue. Exactly. So it's, it's interesting you use that same uh, word. Yes, and, and indeed, I mean, a, a crisis is a risk that materializes. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so you need a trigger for, and, and the nature of a crisis is that it is out of, out of your control. So it's the exposure that pushes the issue, the, the incident, or the problem into the court of public opinion, where, and you need that trigger to get that exposure. Right. Now, in your uh, workshop uh, and your presentation here, you mentioned uh, crisis, crisis leadership, and I'm wondering what's the difference, because different definitions of crisis, what's the definition with good crisis management and good crisis leadership? Crisis management, in my mind, describes more the study of the field of, of preparing and responding to a crisis and recovering from a crisis. Um, but the very nature of a crisis is uncertainty. So I think it gives people a false sense of, of safety or, or, or comfort if you can tell people you can manage a crisis. You can't. The only thing you can do is lead through the crisis to come out on the other hand hopefully in one piece. So I think it requires leadership rather than management per se. Uh, so we've much more gone into the crisis leadership and in fact spent quite a bit of time developing crisis leadership protocol, competency protocols, um, because they're not really available in the academic world. Um, what does it take to be a crisis leader? That was going to be my next question, is what does it take because we have um, seen instances where sometimes the leader of a crisis or the person that stands out isn't somebody you actually thought it would be and the person you thought it would be is the one who just stumbles all over the place. Totally. So what makes a good crisis leader and what, what do they need to know or develop or just all around what makes a good crisis leader? Mm -hmm. I think there's a, f a false perception that if, if senior executives have 25, 30 years of, 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 of experience and business experience in their field, that by default they should be the people um, leading the crisis and they would be equipped uh, to be crisis managers. Um, I think nothing can be more wrong, actually, because, uh, you know, like I often say this, a, a crisis is not a bad week at the office. It takes a different type of resilience. It takes a certain ability to handle stress, because it is stressful, mm -hmm. very stressful, especially if it lasts. And so um, I think the, 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 the approach is that you should make your teams on the basis of suitability and not functionality and rank alone. So indeed, sometimes you see an individual on a team that emerges as having those inner natural crisis leadership um, talent or skills, which includes, of course, ability to see very th things very clearly, empathy, um, decision-making under pressure, uh, situational awareness, um, sense-making, the ability to provide purpose and sense to the organization and the teams in the midst of chaos. Those are not necessarily things that come with business experience. So some people mm -hmm. have it more, have these things more than others naturally. For most of the others, it's a willingness to recognize, I don't have that, so how do I acquire that? And this is where the training and crisis leadership comes in. Right. It's more than I'm familiar with the plan and therefore I know how to, I know how to respond. Yeah, yeah. It's on another level. Uh, it's listening skills, it's assertiveness, but assertiveness on the pressure. And I think what's important is the recognition that leadership in day-to-day, -day, there's lots of role models for that. It's inclusive. It tends to build consensus. It looks at stakeholder buy-in because we know that the more stakeholder buy-in we have, the better the decision will be implemented and the results will be better. Well, none of that applies to crisis. Mm -hmm. In crisis, you don't have time to build consensus. God forbid you start to build consensus on a crisis team, you're never going to make it. So there is a little bit of command and control in it. But, and there is that instruction and regrouping and bringing things back to you and instructing again. It's collecting the input of all the experts around the table, but at the end of the day, the buck stops with one person. And, and the team has to realize that, yes, the buck stops with one person. So if they're used to day-to-day -day consensus building in business meetings, 
that is not going to happen in a crisis. So there are more or, role or models. even mandating, you know, something that you know, this this is how it will be done. Exactly. You can't do that either in a crisis. Exactly. And so I think that there are more role models for leaders in peacetime because we hope. We all aspire to be consensus building because we try to build businesses that democratically run democratically with everybody giving up, giving their, their input. There are less role models for the so-called command and control because it is not perceived to be the right way to manage. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, if you look at Churchill, I mean, he was a, he thrived in a crisis and he was much more command and control. It's a, it's a great example of somebody um, who knew that yeah, he had to make a decision. So I think, um, yeah, there is a big difference between leadership in peacetime and leadership, leadership in a crisis. And most people think that one and one equals two, and it's not like that. No, I, I've worked with people uh, that are calm, cool, collected, even when something's going wrong. You know, they're the calm one, and the vice president's the one that's kind of out of a hand. Yes. You know, and yet they're the one who thinks they're always in control. and they're not the one who's actually being looked at for direction. Yes, and I, I, I've been fortunate to work with clients where it's carte blanche. So if you run an exercise um, from the beginning, you're given the mandate to say, okay, if the crisis, this designated crisis leader who by default might be the managing director or whoever, is not demonstrating to be an effective crisis leader, we can change things around. Mm -hmm. um, not many organizations are willing to do that, but I've had that, I've seen that, and I've done that in in companies where you you just change the roles. It doesn't mean that the MD is not a qualified MD to do his job on day to day, but he's not necessarily the best he or she, not necessarily equipped or the best person to deal with the crisis stress. Right. I've seen that. I, I'm not sure if you're aware of the uh, Lac Megantic uh, yes. disaster here. Yes. Uh, what was his name? Ed Edward Burkhardt, I think, was yes. the uh, the uh, CEO of or president of the railroad company with that disaster, who thought he was the leader in crisis, and that did not go well. You know, the people of the town did not listen to him for leadership. You know, uh, care what he, about what he said. He thought leading a crisis off-site a thousand miles away was better and you know you may be in charge of a big company but as to your point that doesn't mean you're the one to lead that crisis Absolutely. and he was a perfect example of that yeah and equally there are other situations i mean nicky lauda just passed away yeah i used to he, watch him as a kid all yeah. oh, right but he also myself. had an airline <laughs> lauda air and he uh, one of his planes crashed in the thai jungle and it was an awful accident site with terrible um there was looting there was all sorts of other things and he had very short small staff he only had one plane at the time and he took a couple staff went to the scene and managed everything himself with the empathy the leadership the direction he, and so nobody talks about that crisis because it was really well handled that's the difference if you do manage it well um the the memory becomes short and you know, you, it's the bad cases that seem to stick, unfortunately. Yeah, hang around for a long time. <laughs> well, we've come to the end of our first yep. episode, uh, for first segment, sorry. We're talking with Caroline Sapriel at the CRT conference. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you are a pet owner, you know there's a special connection between us and our pets. They are part of the family. The owners of special breeds also understand the important roles they play. Tune in for Greyhounds Make Great Pets to find out more about one special breed. Hosted by Rory and Kathy Goray, along with TJ Beter, we'll focus on greyhounds, 
but we'll also cover topics that apply to any pet owner, like animal welfare issues, racing, and more. Listen live Fridays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back to the show. We are at the CRT conference. We're talking with Caroline Sapriel today about crisis leadership. Uh, in our first segment, uh, Caroline, you mentioned Churchill, and I just wanted to uh, touch on that because um, you said you know he was you know, good under stress. You know, World War Two, really nothing more to say there. But it's interesting because before that, um, he had a lot of uh, historical problems. You know, where he wasn't good under stress and, you know, he wasn't a good leader. He was removed from his positions. And it's interesting when the chips were down how he did stand up. And I guess that happens a lot. Well, hopefully it happens a lot with other leaders in crisis leadership. You know, that's what makes a good crisis. Yes. And so I think the difference is that, you know, or the question is, do you wait until you have a crisis to realize whether you are, you have the right competencies, the right skills, the right approach to lead through a crisis? Or do you train or try to learn some of these before because the chances are that you will have to manage a big crisis in your career in the corporate world or, or a public sector is quite high, even though crises are rare. Uh, in the life cycle of any organization, at some point, something's going to go wrong. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think I agree that Char- Churchill, before the Second World War, was you know had a lot of pushback from different sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I think he rose to the occasion by being incredibly decisive. Um, it, it, he thought out of the box. I mean, if you remember how he re- he made sure that all these English- British servicemen came back from north of France by using every single vessel available in the UK to bring them home mm-hmm. because yeah. their fleet had been decimated. Uh, so thinking out of the box uh, is, is a great you know, leadership skill or crisis leadership skill. Um, having the empathy, recognizing, prioritizing. You won't be able to do everything. So you need to prioritize. And unless you know what to prioritize um, for, uh, it's much more difficult. So the point is, do you wait until you handle the crisis to realize whether you have it in you or not? Mm-hmm. Or do you try to practice through scenarios, exercises, simulation up front to actually see whether you have it? And if you don't have it, what you need to learn or what, what trainings you need to go through to develop um, into a better crisis leader? Um, the or, other thing, or change rules. Or change rules. I was just going to say that. Or the other thing is, not everybody has to be a crisis leader. Some people are much better leaders in peacetime. So recognizing that somebody else might do a better job in a crisis mm-hmm. is is part of the you know is part of the challenge. And 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 it makes the point that the best crisis team is not just functionality and rank. It is also suitability. And some right. people are better at certain things than others. Yeah. I'm curious to know, it got me thinking with some of the things you were you're saying uh, with training to, to be a better crisis leader. Do you find that now with social media being used so much that it's harder for to find crisis leaders because they are so much under the uh, microscope now with social media? Hmm. If, even if you trip slightly, the whole world's going to know about it in no time. I'm not sure that social media is putting the pressure. I'm... I think that in certain countries you have corporate manslaughter legislation in place. So for instance, if you take uh, the example of the Total Erica uh, spill off the coast of Normandy a few years ago, um, the crisis manager was held accountable uh, and he was taken to court. So it th- I mean, it gave, made me think, you know, would I, bec- would I take on the job of a crisis manager if ultimately I'm the one who's going to be responsible f- um, for, for, for the crisis that is actually a corporate crisis and not my crisis? Mm-hmm. So I think that's definitely a pressure. I think social media is, but 
people are getting used to it and they just have to be more careful. I mean, not everything has to go out there. In a crisis, it's critical to manage a social media and you have to give it to professionals. So this is where the comms team, the digital teams on the crisis team or sub teams really have to monitor actively, know how to detect something which is a, an insignificant comment versus something that has the potential to escalate and, mm -hmm. and create a lot of damage. I think that has to be given to professionals. Um, it might be that the comms person or the crisis team decides what the overall strategy, positioning and key messages are, but the executions had to be have to has to be in the hands of professionals. And if you don't have it in house, you have to outsource it to, to agencies who have that capability. Is it the role of the crisis leader to help develop that message or, I believe or that. communicate the message? No, de develop the message. Communicate the message, yes, okay, some senior people on the team may have to be interviewed so they have to learn the skills of media interview but I think it's the role of the crisis team to shape the message uh, and that has to be underpinned by the company's values, the company's uh, mm. mission, what it stands for, its principles and then the messages mm. should prioritize people um, first. Now, those messages can then be taken away by the comms team who's going to know how to craft it in a professional way so that it can then be put out, executed. Um, there is still often, though, the perception or the, the, the tendency that crisis teams just offload things to the comms team. And that's not right. The crisis really? team needs, yeah, crisis team needs to be in charge of the positioning and the message. Why does that happen? Fear. In, 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 I think it's fear? fear, fear and inexperience, thinking, oh, well, we're not going to know how to do it. The comms people are experts in comms, so let them do it. So it's like offloading your responsibility to, to others. Kind of. So in the more progressive companies um, incorporate uh, message development or message and positioning as part of the overall task of the crisis team, and the output is then done by the different people on the um that formula works the best. If 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 you say, well, okay, here, your comms people just put out a press release. That's not good enough. Well, the day that day is long gone. You know? Press release or a message on social media. Yeah. You, yeah, the team and the crisis leader has to be involved in positioning of that message. You know, what's what's in it? What are we going to say? What are stakeholders demanding? Can we put ourselves in the shoes of our stakeholders so we empathize, so that we try to communicate something that they're expecting to retain credibility? Because at the end of the day, all this social media and media is all about credibility. It's not about branding. It's about reputation in a crisis is only based on credibility. It's not. It's whether these people stay about you. Branding is what you say about yourself. So branding mm -hmm. is irrelevant in a crisis. It's all about credibility and trust of stakeholders. So if you empathize and if you try to put yourself in their shoes, you're more likely to uh, take the actions and communicate what is going to make your stakeholders feel that they can still trust you despite the fact that you had a major disruption or accident or something else. I always say you have to walk the talk, but you have to talk the walk. That's true. You yeah. can't just talk, but if you do and don't communicate, and nobody knows, you're going to have a huge gap in perception. And, and that's the beginning of the end. And I call that, a, you know, you're headed for a reputation train wreck. The bigger that gap, the bigger the problem. Yeah, you could be doing something, but no one knows what you're doing. Exactly. And you could be doing the right things, but and no one knows what you're doing. And then afterwards, you say, oh, but well, we did do that. Well, you didn't communicate that. You've lost your, you no longer have control of the message, I guess that's is right. what I, I'm that's trying to right. say. Yeah, and credibility is everything. How do you, it, any recommendations or thoughts on how you get that back? Try to get that back? Since no. we're on that point, I thought, hmm. It's yeah. um, not easy. <laughs> it's not easy and it takes, it takes a lot of time. I've worked on a few situations where uh, wrong decisions, wrong attitude, wrong messages were put out. And in the end, the company was belated for things for more than just the actual crisis. So, mm -hmm. so when when the pers when the crisis is about what you're doing and not doing, and not just what happened, you got a double problem. Mm -hmm. 
So if that happens, there's chances of a trust, a break in the trust with stakeholders are much greater. Um, and so how do you recover that? By showing that, by doing something, by showing that you really genuinely are improving. Uh, and the question is, what can we do to perform better? It's not what can we do to regain reputation. Mm-hmm. What can we do to perform better? And as a result of that, we will retain, hopefully, retain credibility. It's a lot. Uh, it's a lot more than it used to be many years ago. Yeah, a lot you know. of people think that it's you know about messaging and talking and talking. Now you got to listen. You know, taking the perceptions of your stakeholders, and you've got a lot of opposition of you know in front of you. No amount of talking is going to help. You're going to have to demonstrate, prove that you can do it differently. Well, let's look at the the person themselves, the the crisis leader. If you had to tell me that I wanted to be a crisis leader, what do I need to be able to do right now to start changing, to become a good crisis leader? What what kind of things do there I There are need some to do? fundamental things that you, I think, need to have to step in that role and then grow in that role. Number one is a thorough understanding of the business. you got to be familiar with the plans, be them the risk register that's in place, the business continuity plans, the crisis plans. You have to have a familiarity with that so you can own it as well, even if you didn't write it yourself. You have to be media trained, even if you're not going to be the chief spokesperson in a company because you can't take both roles. You've got to have an understanding of what happens when you're being interviewed and how what you say could be misinterpreted. You have to have empathy. You can only um, manage stakeholders and engage stakeholders if you could demonstrate empathy. You have to look after your team. So you have to be cognizant of stress around the team, um, and stay. You know, obviously, you have that calm um, way of operating. You have to be able to uh, listen well, communicate clearly, uh, understand that things are going to get a lot worse before they start getting better. So accepting that you're in for a bad ride and not fight it and work with, with you know, accepting that and, and try to put in uh, mitigating actions so that if it gets worse, you're already a step ahead if you can. Um, so a lot of it is strategic. A lot of it is a set of uh, technical skills. But there's a lot of soft skill in it, like sense making. Sense making is giving a team that's been in chaos for two weeks a sense of purpose. That comes at the mm-hmm. beginning. It's it's like you know you set the course and you hold the course. Those are soft skills. Um, they can be acquired through training, but it's not something you go on a course and then okay, I, I know how to yeah. provide sense making. It's a recognition that sense-making is critical. And the worst type of crises that we read about where people have gone through incredible hardships, what saved them, actually, is sense-making. I don't know if you remember the, um, the case of the miners, the Chilean miners. Yes, yep. There is an amazing book, because they agreed to write a book among themselves to one, uh, they gave their story to one author, and they said that's what saved them, basically. they. They uh, they had discipline. They, they went into a routine, but all of them had a sense of purpose. At the end, that's what held them together. Um, so those are extreme situations. Uh, mm-hmm. if you, you know, somebody earlier today talked about um, the nuclear acts, uh, the um, tsunami in Japan, and combined by the nuclear meltdown. I mean, you got to have a sense of purpose, especially because in this case, you have no solution. I mean, it's a complete disaster. So unless you give a sense of, and you don't find one for yourself. Mm-hmm. You're gonna be taken over. There's no amount. There's no human being, perhaps a commando or a navy seal that is designed or trained to handle that level of stress. And corporate executives are not. No. <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna end this segment here because I've got a question for you that I want to ask at the beginning, and then there's a couple of other things in your presentation I want to touch on. Okay. So we're gonna end our second segment here. We're at the CRT conference here in Toronto, and we're speaking with Caroline Sapriel about crisis leadership. We'll be right back.
get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. There are many people who claim to be dog experts, yet they don't really provide a connection between dog owners and their best friend. This is where the BS stops. Listen for Taming the Wild and Your Dog with expert author and nationally recognized dog trainer Brian Bailey. Each show has experts, professional trainers, and veterinarians to give you the right answers. Listen for the safety and well-being of your dog. Listen every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you are a pet owner, you know there's a special connection between us and our pets. They are part of the family. The owners of special breeds also understand the important roles they play. Tune in for Greyhounds Make Great Pets to find out more about one special breed. Hosted by Rory and Kathy Goray, along with TJ Beter, we'll focus on greyhounds, but we'll also cover topics that apply to any pet owner, like animal welfare issues, racing, and more. Listen live Fridays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. We are at the CRT conference today. We're talking with Caroline Sapro about uh, crisis leadership. Caroline, I've got a question for you based on uh, what some of the things you were saying in segment two. If I'm a crisis leader, is it okay for me to say, I don't know? Absolutely. Why? Um, Because saying I don't know when you don't know is the best way to retain credibility. Don't forget that crises are riddled with uncertainties, riddled with unexpected twists and turns, and the expectation that the crisis leader is going to have the answer for everything is unrealistic. There is, however, a need to continue to instill confidence, and in a verbal or communication technique uh, and way to retain that, is to, whilst acknowledging that you may not know something, you can explain why you don't know. Most people are reasonable. So if you don't have an update on the situation, it can be because the site's not accessible, because something else has happened. There can be a bunch of reasons, and I think people are reasonable if you tell them you don't know because. Or, I don't know, but what I do know, and repeat what you do know. Mm-hmm. So those are more techniques to retain credibility, but at the same time instill confidence, because if you keep saying, I don't know, with nothing else, you very quickly lose confidence, or people will lose confidence in you. The expectation, you're the leader, you should know. That's got to be tough for a crisis leader to, to admit they don't know something. Yes, it is. And in my experience, the situations or the crises that are often poorly handled come down to one single thing it's ego really if it goes in if ego gets in the way uh, and there's multiple examples of that no matter how many trainings how best your processes are and your procedures and everything else if ego gets in the way and you're more worried about how you're going to look and sound than the benefit of, of of to the organization and minimizing the impact yeah, you get into trouble. Of course you get into trouble. And in fact, you may drag the entire organization down with you. Well, I, I have seen some uh, press interviews or whatever you want to call them, media um, moments where people have said, you know, I don't know, and they turn around and say, I'll get that for I'll get an update for you at our next, you know, touch point, whatever the case may be. And I've seen other people say, oh, I don't know, and they just move on to the next reporter's question. You know, and to your point, that's you know, that's got to be tough. You know, if you're watching that, even yourself watching that, going, "Oh, I know where you're heading." Well, uh, so I think that the challenge is, if the questions are around the cause of the crisis, which often is kept under wrap until a full investigation is conducted, 
you need to be trained to to stick your guns and say, look, mm-hmm. I'm not going to discuss this because there's there's an official investigation and the full report is going to come out. At the moment, what we do know is, or I don't have it. So if you say, um, I will get back to you with information, with more information, the next update, that's one option. The next option is, I don't know because. The third option is, I don't know, but what I do know is this. Mm-hmm. So it usually hovers around three. Mm-hmm. Where where executives struggle is when they actually have a fairly good idea of what the problem is, but it's only part of the investigation. And if they prematurely talk about the possible cause, they'll lead into speculation. So the general advice, and that's crisis communication advice, unless the official investigation report and you know is out, don't don't speculate even if you know more than mm-hmm. than you think so that's hard because you can be internally conflicted mm, I can because see you're that, yeah. because you're saying i don't know but actually because you're working inside the organization you have a pretty damn good reason why but you just but can't you just stay can't at that, yeah, at that point interesting because fundamentally you may not be the only party in the chain of event Mm. And if you take the flag and say, well, I think, you know, we messed up this or we did this wrong or we did this wrong, but you're not, only, not the only piece in the chain, yeah. um, you're going to get all the blame prematurely and you're going to lead to huge speculation. That's going to make headlines. and it's, and But that's one of the first questions outsiders want to know. Yeah. What happened? Yeah. What are you doing about it? And who's to blame? Yeah. Yeah, the blame is always blame is huge, and the reason and blame is huge because people cannot atone anything unless they have somebody to peg the problem onto. Hmm. And in the Middle Ages, it was done on a market square with a public lynching. Yep. Today, it's done through social media, media, and other societal pressures. And if you bow to that prematurely, you get hung before you deserve to be hung, or maybe you don't even deserve to be hung. Yeah. It's true. It's interesting. So the well, timing is, is important. Okay. Well, let's jump into something else you had in your presentation that uh, caught my eye. Um, the pair principle. Um, I, I'm not sure if I got the name right. I know it's pair, but I, I don't know if it's the pair principle, but I'm going to call it that for yes. lack of a better term. Can you explain what that means? The pair principle is something that we created a while ago as an acronym. Uh, for people to remember their priorities under pressure. Hmm. There is no crisis where people come don't come first, whether it's people's safety or people's um, well-being. or So people always come first. If you pe- put people first, second is environment. Third is your own assets or your sales or your, your own business. If you do it in that order, you then stand a chance to protect reputation. So pair, it's the fruit, mm-hmm. but it stands for these four words. And when you have to prioritize, it's quite useful to have that in your mind so you don't lose sight of where the real priorities are. Any organization that has prioritized business over people Mm-mm. usually doesn't come out in good shape. No. No, whether but you're the public easy. or the employees. Exactly, but it's easily done. So when business imperatives and different pressures come in, and it even can be with you know insurance and claims and legal issues, when all this comes in first um, before people benefit, yeah, the reaction of the public and stakeholders is, oh, so you care about bottom line more than you care about the people or, that are impacted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've seen it done. Do you have an example where, of where something like that occurred? Uh, well, I've got several instances that I've witnessed um, where those uh, priorities were confused. And I can't really go into an example because it would be inappropriate for me to discuss a real you know, a case. Um, but yeah, things do get confused. People, especially when the question is asked, well, what, do you, what is that going to cost you? And the number comes out. And what's the perception that you've already figured out how much is going to cost you before? You actually dealt with people, right? Yeah. So that that's an you know an example of how you can trip into it. A lot of companies that are well trained are not going to go there, but with the pressures of uh, litigation, 
legal insurance claims, it's quite easy to try and focus on that because the bottom line is so much money involved. And if you prioritize that over the rest. Is, is that what they call um, trying to deflect? Does it, uh, you know, where you're trying to get people not to look at some of the big impacts? You're trying to deflect? And it, I don't know it, that it's it deflecting. Turns, it comes back on them. You know? No, I don't know that this is necessarily deflecting. I think in this case, it's more you're focusing on on the wrong priorities. Mm. I mean, if you if you're a food company, you got a product contamination. It's going to cost you millions to recall. But um, uh, there's an example here in Canada in Toronto, uh, Maple Leaf Foods. That is that one you're you're referencing? No, no, no it's, it's the one not. that jumped right in my but head. But there are many cases of food safety issues, food contamination, and if you do, you know, uh, start launch a recall, it's going to cost you a fortune. It's going to cost you a fortune to launch a recall, and you have loss of sales, but you may very well lose market share as a result of the recall. But fundamentally. You know, that is nothing compared to what if people's lives are at stake. Right. What if one more person dies because you didn't do the recall? Mm -hmm. To me, that's a very quick calculation. So, in doubt, prioritize people. Right. Um, it, it's interesting, all, all the, the sessions that are here at CRT and, you know, other conferences and organizations, that all the fancy technology we talk about, all the you know, cyberware and different mm -hmm. technologies and different ways of doing things, it really comes down to people. Absolutely. In the end of the day, it's all about people. Absolutely. So if you take cyber, for example, there may not be a hell of a lot you can do to actually stop the problem or fix the problem quickly. Fundamentally, mm -hmm. if data of your stakeholders is at stake, it is people, it's your customers, it's your yeah. associates, it's your employees, it is people. So if you don't prioritize the people component by communicating early on and focusing, oh my God, what if we get found out? What if we, how, how what's gonna happen if we find out that we didn't have the right protection? Well, what right. happens when you had the problem going on for four months and you didn't discuss it? Or you didn't, you know, own up to it? Mm -hmm. So people are still priority, and in the case of cyber, it's not people's safety; it's people's trust. It's the end users. Yeah, yeah, and livelihood. It's privacy, too. livelihood. Yeah. yeah. Well, you also talk about uh, the crisis management culture ladders. What is that? Okay, this is something we developed, which is inspired by a piece of research, an extensive piece of research that Shell launched called the Hearts and Minds which try to define an HSC, health and safety and environment uh, culture for their organization, which also was in stepping stones. And so we had seen this on an HSC, in an HSC application, and we tried to look at it and say, is there something here that we could use for the level of crisis preparedness? Um, because we know that you can never be perfectly prepared, so crisis preparedness is not a destination, it's a journey. Mm -hmm. The world yeah. changes, things change, circumstances change, things are always in flux. So it is a, a fallacy to assume that if you do a lot today, that's it, you're prepared to tick the box, you're done. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. That's you right. have to maintain, you have to adjust, you have to adapt, you have to continuously look at new risks, new vulnerabilities. And so the latter allows organizations, it's not a scientific, it's just an inspirational or aspirational uh, way to say, okay, well, if we are calculative right now, which means that we have things in place and we try to deal with things when they come up, how do we get from calculative to progressive? which is, okay, we continuously work on problems because we believe that working on problems allows us to be a better organization. Mm -hmm. And that's the way to, to work. And it can be, so we often use it with our clients to, to help them self-assess, so to speak, and not, like I said, not in a scientific way, more in a, what's your perception? Where do you think you are right now? And then, you know, if you want to be the next level, what do you need to put in place to get to the next level? There can also be a situation where you are calculative in certain areas, but progressive in another, mm -hmm, depending yeah. on, you know, you might be more 
uh, progressive in, in health, safety, and environmental crisis because they're regulated, because there's a lot of systems in place, because you've been doing it for a longer time, but you might be completely reactive um, in a sexual harassment case, for instance, against an executive that you know blows up in your face and creates a huge crisis. Interesting. Because, again, it has to do with ownership of something that right. you wish you didn't have to own up to. With so it's like washing your dirty laundry in public. <laughs> yeah, and that uh, that is very hard to do. And I think that comes back to some of the crisis leadership skills. Is you know if you can't manage it, then you know that's when other people start digging. You know they they start trying to find, and then they dig up other things that had nothing to do with the actual situation. They'll find out things that happened years in the past, and all of a sudden, you're trying to manage a crisis that you thought you had dealt with five years earlier. That's right. My experience, or my perception, and, and to some extent my experience, is that people are by and large willing to give a second chance. So if you got a problem, and you look at that on a personal level, if you have a fight or a misunderstanding with a friend or a family member or a spouse, and you say, okay, well, okay, it's my problem. Uh, I was stressed. I shouldn't have handled it that way. I completely take ownership of the problem. What can I do to make it right? you'll get a second chance. Mm -hmm. Most of the time you will. Now, if you do that 10 times in a row, credibility may yeah. not be very good, but you will get a second <clears throat> chance. Where you don't get a second chance is we, you deny, you're too slow, you think it's not, you try to shove it under the carpet, uh, you try to push it onto somebody else's problem. If you do all those things, the stakeholder is looking at you or your friend or your spouse or your family member, you say, come on, own up. Just own up that something went wrong. Yeah, they're almost. It's pretty almost like simple when you think about it. It's, it's like they're uh, they're almost begging you. Just yeah. just please say you're sorry. And it's so hard, and I don't understand why it's so hard for some individuals and some companies to just say something went wrong. We should this should not have happened, but it happened, and now we're trying to work out why it happened and what can we do so it hasn't happened again. And it sounds simplistic, but that is the essence of it. Yeah. Well, believe it or not, we've actually came to the end of our third segment already. So thank you very much, Caroline, for t talking to us about crisis leadership and, you know, all your experience. I really appreciate it. A lot of great uh, comments and uh, examples uh, you gave us today. So thank you very much for joining us. Alex, thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you uh, for being here. And to everybody out there who's uh, listening, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.